At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Who? The people in the sky. So you truly believe that? I don't have to truly believe it. It's just the truth. And can you tell me why? Yes, I can. But I believe I know what is going on. Can you tell me what that is? I believe they're up there tonight. Right now. And I think there are some reasons to support that idea. Like what? I think they stay away from big cities. I think they wait for people to get together in one place like tonight. And when everyone gets out of that game, they're going to be gone. I think they like people alone. And I think they talk to people with some kind of advanced radio in their sleep. All right, like you think they did with your son. I didn't just think this up. I think at the lowest level, they send people on errands. They play with people's minds. They sway people to do things and think certain ways so that we stay in conflict, focused on ourselves. So that we're always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people. I think they get inside our heads and make us do destructive things like drink and overeat. I've seen good people go bad and smart people go mad. I think at the highest level, they do things that cause nations to go to war. Things that make no sense. And I think no one knows they're being affected. We all work out other reasons to justify our actions. But free will is impossible with them up there. Had to bring out that clip from the disturbing and evocative film, The Vast of the Night. Why? Because Jason Reza Giorgiani incarnates at the virtual Alexandria like an aeonic Paul Revere to proffer some disturbing yet evocative news in the same vein as the movie. Actually, far worse, and from his new book, Closer Encounters. If you thought the Archonic forces were oppressive and authoritarian, you ain't seen nothing yet. Shit just got real and reality just got unreal. It's more intense than when I say this quote. I got 99 problems and being trapped in a decaying body in a money-hungry society on a dying planet in a mysterious dimension might be one. Birth is a curse and existence is a prison. That's because in the vast of the night, the dark night of humanity's soul, these entities have complete control over our material lives, of our afterlives, even of our past with their Mandela effect abilities. 
all due to celestial technology that makes Thanos with the Infinity Club seem like a toddler with a rattle. The Gnostics gave us their warning on this, and now the veil is completely lifted. Shit just got real, and reality just got unreal. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. But hey, did you think it would be any other way? Here in the battlefield of the True Seeker Warrior. Oh, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. With armies of egregores, mind parasites, and killer robots named Pandora bearing down upon us. Game over, man! But not all is lost. As Philip K. Dick said, since the universe is made of information, then it can be said information will save us. Jason brings that extraterrestrial gnosis that includes a psycho-spiritual tech to defeat our alien overlords. This includes a spirit of the trickster and the divine madness of a shining crazy diamond. This is where we hold them! This is where we fight! This is where they die! Deep in your heart, you knew this was close to real. And we would all gather at the virtual Alexandria to face this apocalypse. You knew. And all your lives brought you here for that final Armageddon as Dreamtime pushes in and Marduk realizes that his mother ain't dead but coming back for a second round of cosmic war. I am the beginning, the end, the one who is many. Welcome to Aeon Bite. Welcome to the machine, my son, and the means to escape it. Welcome to the desert of the real, and where shit gets real. We are where the fallen angel meets the rising ape, raging against heaven and storming the gates of hell for our misplaced childhoods and paradises lost. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. I am honored to be by your side. Me, your host, Miguel Connor, your pompadus of gnosis and madmen across the waters of creation. Are you just a dream? A dream to some. A nightmare to others! Closer Encounters, like all of Jason's works, is a king's feast of philosophy and metaphysics. It's a gripping, disturbing, and sober read. But as mentioned, Jason provides inspirational and literally Promethean solutions to finally liberate humanity into the best version of itself. Just as good, Closer Encounters is an expansive and accurate exploration of the entire UFO field. No philosopher's stone left unturned. From the Anunnaki all the way to the recent Gorgon shit reveals of our government. 
The book also provides a fascinating grand unified theory of ufology. People believe in authority. They've grown tired of waiting for miracle and mystery. Science is their religion. No greater explanation exists for them. They must never believe any differently if the project is to go forward. In one section, Jason taps into the ideas of Colin Wilson, Edward Casey, Plato, and Rudolf Steiner. 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 Had to say it. To show that the collapse of Atlantis was due to some of its red pill citizens deciding they had had enough of Olympus. They rebelled against the gods of those days. Thus, it can be said that history always has been Gnostic, always will be. A fight between those who want freedom and equality, and the Olympians who want everlasting group thought and slave case systems. Same as it ever was, despite the chimeras of the Empire's hologram. Shit just got real, and reality unreal. Satellite's been up there for thousands of years. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. The values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. That's why the confession kits, that's why the growing police supervision. Over half our organization's been discovered and eliminated. We of the broken places see this fully now, but we must do our best to awaken others and navigate the hordes of the average. Alas, we still live in a world of overbearing ass clenchers and internet witch hunters, unable to see how the powers and principalities have successfully deployed the mind contagion of circular firing squads and divide and conquer. Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. Heck and heckity, of all places, The Atlantic recently published an article called The New Puritans. The work decries our new cultural revolution. One section argues that the success of the Soviet Union or Mao's China wasn't that much because of propaganda or state coercion, but rather intense peer pressure. As the article states, Even without a clear risk to their life, people felt obliged, not just for the sake of their career, but for their children, their friends, their spouse, to repeat slogans that they didn't believe, or to perform acts of public obeisance to a political party they privately scorned. That is what is happening today. The lead have manufactured a case of digital Bolsheviks on both sides of the spectrum, doing their dirty work for them. And the entities in the vast of the night cackle because their task of farming us is so much easier. Hey, Durr, if you do anything wrong in your life, 
duh, and I find out about it, I'm going to try to take everything away from you. And I don't care what I find out. It could be today, tomorrow, 15, 20 years from now. If I find out, you're fucking duh, finished. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers, must continue negotiating this trap. We must look at the stars for the real enemy and the real solution. As the Gospel of Thomas says, become a passerby, especially on friggin' social media. Or as that text further says, whoever has come to know the world has discovered a carcass. And whoever has discovered a carcass, of that person the world is not worthy. Those who have found themselves, of them the world is not worthy. Don't give yourselves to brutes, men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines, you are not cattle, you are men. Our battle is against that wickedness in high places. So keep being a passerby and going inward to unleash that spark that will release your divine self. As Chris Knoll said, Gnosticism is an outsider proposition, an introvert's game. And as Tobias Churton said, Gnosis is the religion of the artist. And the artist is simply man doing what man does best. Being a joyful co-creator, manifesting light in the dark universe. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Don't you see? You are legend and you are legion and you are wonderful. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake led us to an incredible interview with Jason on Closer Encounters. There were some tech archons harassing some of my audio, although with Vance and Jason, everything was crystal clear. Keep that in mind. And keep in mind, the Empire never ended. We've always been here. We're the ones who sucked all the art and replaced it with trash. We're the ones who fill your life with so much noise and visual clash. You can't tell the good from the crap anymore. Maybe the truth is out there, but we've mixed it up with so much other stuff, you're never gonna find it. You are alone in this whirlpool of meaningless images. Your minds have been skillfully mismanaged since the beginning. You are not a person, you're just the data point. And with all the multitudes working to amuse and distract you, there is no one taking the time to look out for you. Wow. That's sobering. Yeah. <laughs> this is the AM Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of having my friend and one of my favorite scholars, Jason Reza Giorgiani, to discuss his new book, Closer Encounters. Jason, thank you for coming back to the virtual Alexandria. It's always great to be with you, Miguel. 
Always great to have you, even if, uh, as we discussed, this book, uh, I don't get disturbed by much, but this book really uh, took me to another level. And of course, I have to uh, admit, too, uh, beyond the synchronicities we were talking about, one of the themes of A.M. Byte recently has been the trickster, the return of dream time, uh, Cthulhu, the Lord of Dreams, and uh, John Keel, and all that. And your your wonderful wife will attest to this as she listens to the show. And uh, your book was a huge, another huge sink. So uh, interesting times, right, my friend? Nassim will love it that you called her my wife. She's still my fiance, but but you can you know, consider that uh, consider that done. So. Oh, That's a good okay. precognition on your part. <laughs> Very good, Miguel. Yes, yes. Awesome, awesome. I guess I should have said just said the Greek koinonos, your consort, but uh <laughs> consort in the ancient Babylonian uh sense of the temple of Ishtar, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> well, awesome. But uh yeah, she understands. And with us, uh, we have someone who understands so much and of course is also uh a a great researcher on UFOs on his own merit. And that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, okay. I'm uh, down on earth today, of course. And I don't know too much about Jason's book yet, but I can tell that it's not your father's blue book. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. So Jason, one of the um, last year, we talked about your novel, Faustian Futurist. And uh, a novel that I enjoyed. It was grip, gripping, visceral. It was powerful, dark. But I was like, well, hey, this is just good fiction, good imagination. I'm glad somebody thought of it. But now I realize it uh, really wasn't fiction, was it, Jason? No, you know, I did it deliberately, Miguel, uh, because I knew that if I were to deal with this material in a nonfiction form without preparing the audience first, uh, in a medium that was more, let's say, digestible, um, then uh, I think, you know, there would be even more reactive psychological rejection that there, than there's going to be now. I think having presented this material in a fictional context in Faustian Futurist first allowed it uh, to some extent to open up the subconscious of my readership uh, to then be able to grapple with this uh, empirical evidence a little more um, effectively. Yeah, and we'll uh, get into the thesis, but uh, when did all of this start to percolate? Because again, you have addressed UFOs in most of your books, even in novel folklore, you talk about UFOs. When did this hit you or how did this, how did your thesis start to coalesce into uh, closer encounters? To be honest with you, I've studied UFOs in a pretty serious way for about 20 years now. And so I was actually able to write this book very quickly only because I had spent decades researching the material on the side of everything else that I'd been doing. And, you know, if you look even at my first book, Prometheus and Atlas, Mm -hmm. in the last chapter, Mercurial Hermeneutics, I'm already talking about Uh, close encounters in the Bible and cattle mutilations and their connection to hermetic archetypal symbolism and so forth. Or let's say the PK man, Ted Owens, and his capacity to psychokinetically uh, either communicate with UFOs or manifest UFOs and and have them augment his psychokinetic capacities. So those were all uh, hints in my earlier works 
um, that you know I had been deeply researching this material on the side. Uh, if you look at novel folklore as well, my interpretation of Sadar Hedayat's novel, The Blind Owl, there I had drawn a close comparison between Hedayat's novella and Whitley Strieber's Communion. So it's always been something that I, uh, uh, that I have uh, researched on the side of my other academic philosophical work. And finally, I've drawn together uh, my conclusions at the end of two decades of studying the subject. Yeah, incredible conclusions. And before we even get to the thesis, uh, your book definitely addresses this, and that is uh, the recent uh, UFO hoopla coming from the government. And I like how you write, uh, and you're pretty sarcastic in some parts, right? The government has 70 years of uh, data on UFO, solid data, but they're still sort of uh, hedging their, well, what are they doing, Jason? I mean, they're not convincing any occultists or people like you. I mean, it's obviously a big sham. Yeah. The reason that I published this book now is in response to what I think, frankly, is a monstrous deception and a very alarming, quote unquote, revelation from the U.S. government. Um, so, you know, when you read my book, you'll see that there really is no good reason why any uh, major nation state would disclose the truth about the UFO phenomenon. It presents such a fundamental challenge to the very concept of state sovereignty that it would really be detrimental to any major stakeholder on this planet to come clean about this phenomenon. And so the question you really have to ask yourself is why we're even getting as much of a disclosure as we are finally yeah. from the Pentagon, right? And you know, it really alarms me because I think the answer to that is that there's a timetable that's not being determined by our government. They know that within the coming decades, let's say within the next 30 years, some form of disclosure is going to have to take place, not initiated by them, but initiated by the, uh, the beings piloting these UFOs. Because one thing we have to always remember, and you know, it, it's amazing how many people this is lost on. Uh, one thing we always have to remember is that the cover-up is not primarily coming from our government, right? I mean, the pilots of the UFOs at any hour of you know, morning, noon, or night could appear over any major city <laughs> and disclose themselves definitively. Right. And so obviously, the, the concealment is really coming from the level of the phenomenon itself. And so I think that because of the uh, imminence of the technological singularity, which we've discussed before and I've written about in my other books, because of this uh, imminent convergent advancement of technologies like genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, cybernetics, and so forth, that have the potential of putting us uh, ultimately on a par with uh, the, the UFO-nauts, um, there's, there's going to have to be some kind of disclosure within the next uh, 20 to 30 years. And so I think right now machinations are taking place um, at the Pentagon in negotiation with other nations and potentially even in some kind of a negotiation with the beings themselves in order to broker uh, a transfer of power and a restructuring of sociopolitics on the planet. Uh, and, you know, I find the, the specific 
form that this report took to be very disturbing in that regard, because I think it's setting us up for a, a disclosure that will be managed in a way that results in a very disempowering restructuring of geopolitics and uh, basically uh, sovereign authority on this planet. But as you write, maybe they had no choice because uh, if, like you uh, argue, if the Chinese are already in bed with these UFOs, Archons will get into that and they're doing their bidding and they're going to go to the moon and Mars and do all this stuff. And as you write too, and obviously the fall of Kabul is a great symbol that the United States is no longer an empire no longer useful to the elite, just like uh, the USSR was once an empire, then it makes sense that we kind of have to, because again, we have uh, a rising power that's completely in bed with, uh, with these aliens. Yeah, but here's the problem, Miguel. And th this is what I find appalling about the UAP preliminary assessment from the Pentagon. Uh, you know, people have, okay. Of course, there's a large swath of the population that just dismisses this whole subject. But from out of that percentage of the population that take UFOs seriously, the assumption has been, not only in the United States, but among the populations of allied nations in NATO, that the United States has, uh, the, the uh, deep state in this country has a good handle on the subject, and that probably the Pentagon is reverse engineering hardware, maybe they've made major advancements, and the reason they're keeping the subject secret is that the United States is trying to develop a deterrence capability or some kind of a uh, you know, uh, weapons platform uh, that would be capable of handling the potential threat from UFOs. That's been the assumption to the extent that I think, uh, let's say when the uh, UAP wave took place in Belgium in 1989 with those huge flying triangles that you know, went over the, uh, you know, the uh, capital district of NATO and over various uh, US military bases there, it was assumed by many Europeans that those were quote unquote UFOs manufactured by the Pentagon. So one huge problem with this report is that when you come out and you say, okay, look, some of these things are probably genuinely unidentifiable aircraft with high performance capability. Um, none of them are ours. They could be manufactured by Russia or China, or maybe it's something else. Well, you are then confessing that you have no deterrence capability against these things. Now, that may be a lie, but why would you tell that story? What's the thinking behind such a humiliating uh, statement. The thinking behind it is that the decision has already been made at a very high level that the United States is going to abdicate its responsibility and allow China to manage this situation on a planetary scale. That's what I find most appalling about the UAP report. Yeah, no kidding. But again, uh, the United States is being shelved uh, as a world power. I guess Silicon Valley it's, it can be its own nation state and uh, work with China. So yeah, scary geopolitics uh, as we speak. Uh, but well, uh, of course, let me, let me add one thing to that, Miguel, sure. though. Um, the thing is that, look, and anyone who's done any degree of competent research in this area knows that we have had uh, very sophisticated classified laboratories working for decades on manufacturing, uh, you know, components of UFOs and possibly 
you know, actual working uh, saucers or, or uh, triangles using anti-gravitic technology. For example, in my book, I go into um, uh, detail looking at some of these newspaper reports from the 19, uh, newspaper and magazine articles from the 1950s talking about, and we're talking like the New York Herald Tribune, okay, right. and <laughs> leading aerospace journals in the 1950s talking about how anti-gravity aircraft propulsion was imminent, that these uh, designs were being worked on at a prototype stage by companies like Martin Aircraft, Bell Aircraft, um, the company that became uh, Lockheed, um, and a number of other, uh, Lear was another one, the Lear uh, Jet Corporation. They were working on these things in the 1950s, and it seemed that they were ready to start rolling them off the assembly line within five years. Some of the chairmen of these various corporations, the CEOs and so forth, were quoted as saying that with a Manhattan uh, project uh, scale operation and uh, appropriate funding, it would take them only five years to start rolling anti-gravity craft off the assembly line that could get you from New York to Australia in an hour. Wow. What happened? <laughs> are, you, are you seriously telling me that you know, the Pentagon doesn't have defense contractors in deep underground bunkers and so on and so forth uh, in this country working on these things. They haven't actually manufactured hardware like this. They have. So why are they abdicating their their responsibility to project the defense umbrella over this planet to the Chinese? Uh, here's the answer. And this is this is what's really most disturbing about the UAP report. The answer is that at some point, in the last several decades, that deepest layer of the deep state in this country that Eisenhower referred to as the military industrial complex in his farewell speech, the deepest layer of that structure has divorced the United States. Mm. It is working inside this country, but it is not working for this country. And this is a conclusion that should have been, it's, a, it's, it's an outcome that ought to have been obvious to the people who brought thousands of high-ranking Nazis over here in 19, from 1945 to 1947, repatriated them, and put basically all of the advanced defense research of this country in their hands. Uh, I think that what we're looking at is a takeover of the deepest layer of the American deep state by what I call the breakaway civilization, and probably a key event uh, you know, in terms of the serving of the divorce papers by these defense industrialists, you know, serving the, uh, of their divorce from uh, any uh, obligation to the United States government or to the American people was 9-11. Within a decade of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had this event take place on September 11, 2001. And I think that these people who were rabid anti-communists, uh, and who were brought here, you know, high-ranking SS officers from 1945 to 47, they wanted to use the United States as an industrial powerhouse uh, and capitalist engine to defeat their primary adversary, which was Soviet communism. And once they achieved that objective, within a decade of collapsing the Soviet Union in 1991, they turned on the United States from within, and for the past 20 years, they've been trying to destroy this country. Well, it looks like they're succeeding, yeah, and I'm thinking of Catherine Austin Fitz and the $21 trillion that is still missing somewhere. It's in some, uh, I don't know, wallet somewhere or something like that. So, yeah, I would agree with you. 
So uh, what's uh, there's so much fascinating about your book, Jason. And for the audience, uh, this may be, seem stark and grim, but there is uh, there is plenty of divine sparks at the end of Jason's book because, of course, he gives uh, solutions of what we need to do. But we'll get to that. But uh, your book is sort of a uh, theory of all for UFOs because the UFO community has been arguing about different theories. And uh, the theories are, and I'll list them here if you don't mind, Jason, they are um, UFOs are produced by Hidden Terrestrial Society of Breakaway Civilization. You just mentioned that. They are interdimensional, originating from parallel versions of Earth, closely related to this idea is that the UFOs are time machines and their occupants are time travels, potentially from the future. Uh, number four is uh, they are uh, survivors of some vastly ancient human civilization. Number five, they're not physical objects. They are psychic projections from the collective unconscious and beings encounter and association with them are king to phantoms or egregores. Yes, this is Jung. Uh, six, we are in a computer simulation and what we're having are close encounters. And you basically argue that, yes, all of these are right. Yeah, I argue that, well, let's put it this way. The thesis of my book incorporates elements of these various hypotheses into one overarching interpretation of close encounters. So I argue that there's something true to all of these rival hypotheses, including the simplest one, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, or ETH, as UFO researchers like to call it. Uh, so to give you an example, just briefly, to sketch out what I mean by elements of all of these being correct. Suppose you uh, suppose that UFOs are, are flying time machines, right? Because as I explain in the book, anytime you achieve the controlled singularity uh, of zero-point energy, that gives you anti-gravitic propulsion, you're also warping the fabric of space-time. So any ZPE-driven aerospace device is also potentially going to be a time machine. And so let's suppose these UFOs are flying time machines. Well, you need to be sure of one thing. If you're going to start uh, basically regularly engaging in time travel, you need to be able to control the extent of the uh, impact of your manipulation of variables in history. You're going to need to be able to manage the ripples that you cause in the timeline and be very careful not to affect um, certain initial conditions that, let's say, are integral to bringing about you know, the civilization and the society from out of which your uh, project uh, arose in the first place. So you need some place to retreat to. You need some kind of a zone that's protected uh, from um, alterations to the timeline of terrestrial history. And so what I suggest in this book is that one thing that would make perfect sense uh, to time travelers, either let's say in, well, okay, let's, let's say in, at some point close to our present moment in history, if people were to crack time travel technology, it would make sense for them to travel to the only other planet we know in our solar system was Earth-like at one point, namely Mars, 
and to a time, namely 250 million years ago, when Mars was a uh, green planet with oceans uh, that would be capable of supporting human life, and to base themselves there in, a, a, in an environment that's isolated from terrestrial history so that they run less of a risk in interfering with the initial conditions of their own society. So there you already have two different hypotheses. You have time travel and then also the extraterrestrial hypothesis where the time traveling civilization of humans becomes a civilization of Martians and their travel between Mars and the Earth's moon system is, uh, is itself uh, you know, extraterrestrial in nature. So, so th th that's uh, you know, a way to bring those two hypotheses together. And then anytime you're talking about time travel, you're also talking in a sense about interdimensional travel because, and you know, here uh, the details are complicated because there are various cosmological models for how time travel would be possible and you know, what the very nature of space-time is, and I get into those in this book. But uh, to make a long story short, if you're quote-unquote changing history using a time machine, you are in effect moving between dimensions. Uh, and these alternate versions of history are like different dimensions of uh, terrestrial life. So there are three hypotheses right there. And then if we want to go into a fourth, namely the simulation argument, one of the points that I make in this book is that a way that you can get around the so-called grandfather paradox and understand uh, how it could be possible to alter the timeline of terrestrial history is to think of our cosmos as an information processing system, as a kind of uh, quantum computational system that has a storage function akin to a CPU and that uh, overwritten timelines are stored in this CPU statically um, in a manner that has been vaguely grasped by mystics who talk about the Akashic record. So that the Akashic record is a kind of uh, indistinct and uh, primitive way of referring to a feature of the information processing system that's this cosmos and that is programmable and reprogrammable by these time machines that we call uh, UFOs. And then uh, to, to finally just address the, um, the hypothesis of uh, the Euphonauts being survivors of, a, uh, of an ancient civilization. Well, obviously, if you insert yourself deep into the, the past of this solar system, let's say Mars 250 million years before the present, then there's going to be uh, a whole, not a whole, just a whole epoch. There are going to be eons of human history that have been lost to our collective memory or that have been erased from uh, the archive that we've been allowed to access in order to understand human history. And so uh, in this book, uh, one of the, one of the, um, uh, comparisons that I draw, one of the, um, the comparative analyses that I carry out that leads me to the conclusion that we are in fact dealing with time travel is to look at the structure of Atlantean civilization, to look at uh, the various archaeological ruins and uh, 
cultural anthropological studies that suggest that there was this unifi unified planetary civilization circa 12,000 years uh, and more before the present, namely Atlantis. And to compare the character of that Atlantean civilization to let's say the ruins that we find on, on Mars or the remote viewings of, of Mars and of structures on the moon. Uh, and to ask ourselves how it could be that you have the same architectural style at work in the megalithic constructions of the quote unquote Atlanteans 12,000 years before the present on earth as you do uh, in ruins that are probably about 250 million years ago, uh, 250 million years old on Mars. And as you do in, um, in structures, megalithic structures that have also been photographed on the moon. And my, my answer to that is that it's, it's impossible to think of this as a chronologically continuous civilization. The time scales are too long. It, it would be absurd to imagine uh, that kind of cohesion and, and uh, uh, stability uh, in terms of social structure as reflected in aesthetics for a human civilization over the course of 250 million years. Rather, what we're dealing with is a hyperdimensional civilization of time travelers that in some way is connected to Mars 250 million years before the present uh, in a civilization based on Earth tens of thousands of years before the present. That the, the denizens of this, this uh, civilization are not bound by our uh, 4D constraints of space-time. They're able to operate on a fifth dimensional level in order to manipulate the variables of the human history that they've shaped. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Ooh, that was well said, Jason, and a good summary. Yeah, for the Mars uh, issue, uh, Jason talks about uh, somebody who I follow, Dr. Brandenburg, uh, his, and go to his site, Death of Mars, uh, the scene, Xenon-129 isotope that uh, can only happen when there is a nuclear war, and they found that in Mars, and uh, tracking back to 250 million years ago. And uh, as Jason mentioned, uh, he uses the work of Ingo Swan and other remote viewers who are able to see this ancient civilization on Mars. So for me, it was like, oh, my God, it's just blowing me away. It's just uh, supporting something. 
Let me just uh, make a note about that, Miguel. Um, I, I actually had the good fortune of being able to, uh, to spend several days conversing with John Brandenburg. Oh, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, we, cool. we, we were in New Mexico for a few days together. And uh, so I, I was able to engage him, you know, at some depth and detail about this subject. And it's absolutely fascinating and, and terrifying at the same it's time. It's terrifying, yes, because um, it's, it's so scientific. I mean, you can't argue against it. I can't see a, a weak spot. <laughs> yeah, look, the guy was working at Sandia Laboratories when he arrived at this conclusion. And for those who are not familiar with it, Sandia is one of the uh, classified laboratories that deals uh, mostly with nuclear-related research. And so there are, there are experts there uh, who, you know, focus on nuclear weapons development and we nuclear weapons testing and so forth. And basically, Brandenburg had been involved with NASA studies of the moon and Mars, and he had this isotopic data from Mars that he was looking over. And one of the nuclear weapons experts at Sandia, um, who he was discussing this, this uh, Mars data with, said to him, listen, what you're, the data you're showing me has only one interpretation. This is a signature of a thermonuclear weapons detonation, particularly because the isotope of xenon-129 that's found in the Sedonia region of Mars, the region where we see these megalithic ruins, uh, is, is not only the same isotopic um, ratio that we find at nuclear weapons test sites on Earth and under no other conditions throughout the solar system. In, in every other planet, rocky planet in the solar system, the isotopic ratios of xenon-129 are as consistent as they are with, uh, with that ratio on the Earth as a whole. The only deviations across our entire solar system where you find uh, you know, isotopic ratios of xenon are at nuclear weapons test sites on Earth, thermonuclear weapon test sites on Earth, and at these places on Mars. And in addition to that, at this place on Mars, there's no impact crater, which means that it could not have been a meteorite or some celestial object that produced this radiation signature. So uh, Brandenburg came to the conclusion that about an Empire State Building sized thermonuclear device or a bunch of devices that collectively, uh, uh, you know, delivered that yield would have been, uh, would have had to have been detonated at Sidonia to produce this radiological signature. And that kind of detonation uh, effectively would have destroyed the entire ecosystem of Mars and turned it into the dead planet that it is today. Yeah, it's it's incredible, and I highly advise. Yeah, Jason deals with it in his book, and check out uh, Dr. Brandenburg's uh, website. And do you want to give away the the identity of the villains of the individuals who found this uh, technology and can time travel, interdimensional travel, and basically are controlling this universe? I know people will be thinking Nazis, but you're kind of right. The Nazis kind of are. Sophia forbid that they control the universe, okay, Miguel? Well, yeah. My book is not that grim. <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth. All right? I didn't you're say right. they control the universe. It's Tronics on my side. Right? Uh, yeah. If anything, I think that they're being uh, quarantined here because yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. else is operating on a cosmic level of intelligence doesn't want this form of humanity going out and mucking up the rest of the cosmos. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, no, 
far be it from them to control the universe. But what I do think has happened is that humanity cracked time traveling technology and basically put itself in a fifth dimensional prison. I think that that's a, a way to, to put this thesis in a nutshell. That Look, think about it this way. Somebody's going to invent time travel at some point. If it's feasible, and most physicists agree that it is, it is invented at some point. And when it's invented, the whole nature of our relationship to our history changes, right? Because at that moment, history isn't a line anymore. History becomes like the curvature of the event horizon of a black hole. And the, the people, whoever they are, who cracked time travel technology first, would basically have the power to set themselves up as gods over humanity in any and every epoch and to reshape history, to bend history to their will. So the really controversial aspect of my book has to do not with that abstract idea, but with the specifics of who exactly it is that invented time travel. And, you know, I make this argument uh, by going back to the airship sightings of the uh, 1890s. Actually, they began in the 1870s. There are some indications that some prototypes of these airships were being built, but there was a huge flap in the 1890s across the United States of what were certainly not Zeppelins, let alone air balloons. They were Jules Verne style contraptions that were seen by hundreds of people in, you know, uh, ultimately I think um, at least a dozen states across the country. And they were reported in, in tens of newspapers. And uh, so I, I looked into this subject. Uh, W.A. Harbinson has written a lot about it also Walter Bosley, and they um, have reconstructed that these airships were being manufactured by a non-governmental corporation uh, based in Prussia, that um, in the late 1800s, in the, in the 1870s, a group of Prussian nationalists, people who had the aspiration of creating a unified Germany when none yet existed, and who wanted to compete with the British, the French, the Spaniards, um, wanted to compete with those colonial powers to exploit the Americas for resources, they began to uh, buy up large swaths of land in the Americas, and they started uh, airship development in the Americas for the purposes of exploration and resource exploitation. And these um, Prussian uh, corporatists were uh, connected to Anglo-Saxon businessmen, both in America, particularly in New York, and also in Britain. So you have a kind of Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Germanic international elite, uh, a kind of Nordic elite, um, who also happened to be, disturbingly enough, uh, zealous advocates of eugenics. I mean, these are the people who, beginning in, in uh, you know, the 1890s and going all the way up through the 1930s, all the way up to the beginning of the Second World War at institutions like 
the, uh, the Carnegie Foundation, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, Cold Spring Harbor, were doing uh, all kinds of eugenics research and were uh, advocating for the passage of eugenics laws in various American states. All of the eugenics laws of Nazi Germany were modeled on American eugenics laws. And so you have this elite and you can see that on the one hand, they are uh, aggressively pursuing eugenics and in their own words, the creation of quote, a master race, unquote, a Nordic master race, unquote. And on the other hand, they are developing uh, electrogravitic airships. And so um, it's not the case, as some people might crudely suggest, that I'm saying that we're dealing with quote unquote time traveling Nazis. No. What I suggest in my book is that Nazi Germany itself was like a field laboratory set up by this uh, Western hemispheric Anglo-Germanic elite. That and they had, like, of course, like Alan Dulles, Rockefellers, Bushes, all the usual suspects uh, under the, working for them. J.P. Morgan was the principal financier from out of New York. He was funding Nikola Tesla to be able to have access to Tesla's patents, actually to buy up Tesla's patents so that he could bury them because Nikola Tesla was developing the same type of uh, uh, power generation and propulsion technology that these Prussian corporatists had already arrived at. And in order to ensure that this would not make its way into the public domain, Morgan uh, duplicitously funded Tesla so that he could appropriate these patents and bury them, while at the same time funding uh, these Prussian corporatists and also uh, working together with Rockefeller and Alan Dulles, Morgan funded the rise of uh, both German National Socialism and Italian fascism through the 1920s and 1930s. And then, of course, Alan Dulles, who worked at this uh, corporation with Rockefeller and Morgan, this corporation that was basically funneling money for the rise of fascism in Europe, that Alan Dulles would go on to found the CIA. And the first thing that the CIA did, you know, when it was constituted in um, 1947, was it basically fused the entire East German Nazi spy network of General Reinhard Galen into the OSS, so that the CIA was co-constituted from its foundation by uh, some pretty hardcore anti-communist Nazis. Yeah, and again, you detail this very well. And as you go through your book, you keep because uh, it, it is complex. It's hard to get your mind around how these Nordics in the late nineteenth century broke everything open, and now can time travel, control history. History is a loop. They've been to Mars. They've been to uh, they've been to Atlantis. But uh, you make such a good case, and you keep explaining this and and uh but vance does this make sense to you again i I read the book and i really liked it but uh does this make sense to you hearing this for the first time yeah it kind of falls in line with lots of things that i've uh, known about over the years Uh, i don't um but i'm wondering uh, then jason you're saying the nordics are actually ordinary human beings that develop technology in the uh in the 19th century and uh, developed time travel and then went back to Mars 250 million years ago and so forth. Is that the way it started? 
So I'd be careful with the word ordinary, right, in this context. <laughs> but, yeah, nothing's but, ordinary about this stuff. But the short answer to your question is yes. So what I'm suggesting, and, and listen, it's not lost on me. This is an appallingly disturbing thesis, I understand, okay? To everybody who's, whose brain is in pain right now, I understand. But if you actually, the devil's in the details, okay? And you have to, you have to consider that at some point in history, time travel is going to be invented. At the moment we find ourselves in now, even in the public domain, looking at, you know, entirely like uh, open source information about technological development, we are, by a lot of experts' estimates, only 30 years away from the technological singularity. Well, what is the epitomizing innovation of the technological singularity? It's a controlled singularity. Zero point energy is the epitomizing development of the technological singularity. Not genetic engineering, not nanotechnology, not cybernetics. All of these other technologies, whether it's genetic engineering that increases our IQs so that we're capable of thinking in terms of more complex mathematics and physics, or whether it's nanotechnology that allows us to engineer on a finer scale, or whether it's cybernetics that allows us to maybe fuse with some kind of artificial intelligence that can solve problems better than we can, all of it will facilitate the development of a controlled singularity. In other words, zero point energy that ultimately gives us power not only over space, but over time. And what I'm suggesting is that imagine if it's the case that we're not actually 30 years away from this, that there's a different physics model you could work with. And people have been working with that physics model since the 1890s. And they made this breakthrough by the 1940s. By the 1940s, there was an achievement in Prague of zero point energy. And it was transplanted to facilities in Argentina and possibly Antarctica where development continued. And what I'm suggesting is that this Anglo-Saxon elite which set up Nazi Germany in the first place, and which had as its eugenics project, the creation of quote, a Nordic master race, unquote. It's all over their uh, publicly printed research papers and proposals and, and government policy uh, uh, you know, um, advocacy. This elite that explicitly aimed to create a quote unquote Nordic master race did exactly that. They achieved zero point energy technology and at that moment, their society forked off from the various civilizations of Earth and ultimately evolved into a breakaway civilization, not only in four dimensions, but a breakaway civilization that's fifth dimensional. In other words, that is capable of, of traveling uh, back and forth between vastly disparate epochs of the cosmological history of this solar system let alone the geological history of Earth, and that these Nordics, and this is where the, you know, it's important to push back against the qualifier ordinary, these Nordics gifted themselves with millions of years of evolution that the rest of us don't have. By transplanting themselves to a living Mars 250 years before the present, they initiated a whole civilizational trajectory that ends with Atlantis, and with, let's say, the collapse of Atlantis 12,000 years before the present, a whole civilizational trajectory that allowed them to evolve into, well, you know, what they tend to think of as uh, superhumans. 
But one of the things that I do, you know, Ubermenschen, to put it in German, one of the things that I do in this book is I, I uh, fundamentally challenge that conception of their superhumanity. And I really argue that this putative master race actually represents an evolutionary dead end for man. And that in fact, there is another type of intelligence involved in the close encounter phenomenon, that there's a, another source of close encounters, which is coming from the future. And that it is basically uh, in an adversarial dynamic with this Nordic breakaway civilization, uh, attempting to somehow deconstruct this uh, Nordic breakaway civilization in order to free up our evolutionary possibilities. And there, when I say our, I mean, you know, we the poor bastards who have to <laughs> you know, suffer manipulation at the hands of these fifth dimensional archons. Yeah, the truly ordinary. <laughs> yeah, the high, like, you know, according to them. Yeah, and uh, we want to get into the tricksters, but uh, like you said, they are separate, evolving to their whatever superior, like you said, this dead end. But they're also behind many of the alien abductions, experiments. They're always doing things to us and there's plenty of evidence whitley strieber has even seen the nordics he he's he's documented it a long time ago and so have many other cultures uh, they've described these nordics appearing um and this ex again explains the whole abduction and all that but do they that's the one what i wanted to ask you jason do they change our history or they try to stay away from our history for example if they think, well, Jason is, he's got, he's gotten too close to us. Although you know how the elite are, they love to hide things in plain sight. I think Hollywood would make this book into a movie because that's how they roll. If they put it in plain sight and nobody will get it. And it's a great story too, uh, Foster and Futurist, but could they, for example, go and just eliminate you from the timeline, Jason, or that's not how they do it. No, I think they could. I think yeah, they, they could, could just say you would just disappear and I'd be talking to some other scholar right now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, of all people, I mean, Philip K. Dick thought this was the case. I mean, he, yeah, he actually yeah. believed that, you know, there were uh, fairly regular alterations in the timeline and that deja vu was an indication that, you know, um, an edit had been made. And he went to the extent that that sci-fi conference in, in Metz, France, right. in 1977, of claiming that a number of his novels um, were like Man in the High Castle, Flow My Tears, and so forth, were, were uh, written based on memories of alternate timelines, memories of you know, how history had unfolded before certain edits were made. So yes, I think that uh, unfortunately they could go back and delete me. And this is one of the most unsettling aspects of this book. Um, because I go into the, the metaphysical dimensions of this. You know, I go into this in terms of what ontology is it that would allow for something like that? And I draw from, let's say, Heraclitus uh, in that respect. And, and oddly enough, Charles Fort and, you know, draw a comparison between like Heraclitus and Charles Fort and so forth. But in any case, um, yes, I think that's possible. Someone could go back and delete me so that I don't become a problem. The thing is, it's complicated to work with uh, these variables. And my guess is that, and one of the things that I get into at length in this book is that there's another side as well. Throughout human history, there is this Promethean side uh, of the breakaway civilization itself. I mean, this is the 
conflict between the gods and the titans in various pagan mythologies, you know, the devas and the ashuras, right. to put it in a Sanskrit context, or then after the, you know, uh, Christianization of the West, the angels versus the demons, the demons being the titans who were resisting the gods. And so there's always been this other Promethean side in human history, um, the, the Enki side, the, uh, you know, the figures like Quetzalcoatl, who were advocates for humanity and uh, emissaries of enlightenment. And so I think that, you know, uh, first of all, anyone who would want to make edits like that would have to contend with, uh, you know, adversaries from within the breakaway civilization itself. And so that there's a struggle over shaping human history. Uh, but then also in the context of that struggle, and this is a, a subtle point, uh, which hopefully won't be lost on people, but I think a lot of times two sides can look at a certain individual or a certain series of events and each side can believe that it can play that person or thing to their advantage. And so they don't get simply get rid of something in a lot of cases because they're waiting to see whether it can actually be spun to benefit them in the longer run. If, if you know what I mean by that. Oh yeah. UFO field is rife with that. You know, people that are ridiculed successfully and it makes whatever they were saying, assuming it was valid, uh, make it, makes it unbelievable to the general public. Yeah, that is true. And, uh, um, reading some notes, you even uh, wrote uh, Hitler himself used to have visits from the Nordics and he would scream to people, I've seen the new man and all that. He was a, a puppet under this. And just to be clear too, uh, Jason, Atlantis, you argue, is not Northern Sahara, as uh, the sleeping psychic said, uh, or in uh, the um, Bermuda Triangle, but Atlantis was actually in the uh, Antarctica. And this is where it gets Gnostic too, right? Because you argue there was a sort of a war between those, the, the, this Nordics, those who wanted to break away from quote unquote Olympus and those who want, well, those who wanted to break away from Olympus. Yeah, the core of the story of Atlantis, as we find it in Plato, who is our first source uh, of knowledge about Atlantis and all of literary history. The core of that story of Atlantis is a story of rebellion against Olympus. I mean, that's what the tale is ultimately about. It's the idea that, you know, the Olympian gods set up all these colonies on earth and each one was governing a colony, gods and goddesses, so that, you know, Athens is the domain of Athena. That's why it's called Athens. And, and this uh, antediluvian Athens actually makes a prominent appearance in the story of Atlantis as recounted by Plato. Uh, but in any case, you had all these domains governed by what I would call, you know, these, you know, uh, Nordic time travelers. And one of them became powerful enough to challenge the authority of Olympus over the earth. And for whatever reason, the denizens of this uh, island that was originally set up by Poseidon, but was governed by Atlas, and therefore was called Atlantis, the realm of Atlas, the realm of King Atlas, the denizens of this island continent, the geographical description of which that Plato provides us with, I think only fits Antarctica, the denizens of this uh, Atlantis 
rebelled on all levels against Olympus, not just politically, but spiritually. They stopped revering the gods and, uh, and uh, had uh, decided to pursue a course of um, self-determination and, uh, you know, to follow a, a humanistic path uh, to their own uh, empowerment and uh, the enrichment of their own lives materially and spiritually. And so, um, you know, they, they engage in this struggle on a planetary scale, which is described from the Olympian perspective as an invasion of the rest of the world, primarily through the oceans by Atlantis, an invasion uh, of the rest of the world by Atlantis, but which I think that if you read it from the Atlantean perspective could be seen as a kind of global liberation struggle an attempt to free mankind from these uh, tyrannical, sadistic Olympians. And this is exactly the same story, you know, in its basic features as we find in the Bible with the civilization of Noah, the, uh, you know, the civilization of the fallen angels, quote unquote, who interbred with mortals in order to create a race of hybrids, race of giants or heroes uh, who challenged the authority of the gods and who had to be wiped out by the same flood that we see in Plato's story of Atlantis. At the same time, Jason, you you also write that these uh, Nordics have been responsible for placing many of our religions to basically, well, to cuck us, right? <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, Noah's uh, flood story, I mean, which is, is really, I mean, Noah's, look, you know, people like, this is, it's, it's crazy what's been done to us. It's really crazy. People think of it as the Noah flood story. It's not right. the Noah flood story. It's a story of Atlantis. <laughs> it's the, the, the whole point of that story is, Look, you're reading about how, quote unquote, God Almighty, as he likes to think of himself, um, decided that he regretted the entire creation and had to wipe the whole earth clean in a flood. Well, gee, I wonder what could have happened to bring him to such a dramatic decision, right? And here's where, you know, uh, our, our religious history has really been tampered with because you've got like a paragraph in Genesis that describes what it is that brought God to that conclusion, namely that a group of the Elohim came down and interbred with mortals, and they created a rebellious race of hybrids on the earth to challenge the authority of Yahweh, of Jehovah. Uh, and this would be Plato's Atlantis, right? And it says in Genesis that, um, you know, basically the way of all flesh on the earth had been corrupted by these fallen angels. Uh, which I think is a suggestion of genetic engineering. And, you know, in my book, I go into evidence for that. I go into evidence uh, for early genetic engineering by these Elohim or, you know, Anunnaki, as they're called in the older Mesopotamian texts. Uh, and so, but to answer your question, that's the first major episode in the history of the revealed religions, other than the story of the Garden of Eden, which is also, you know, very interesting from this perspective. But the first major uh, episode that's relevant to the close encounter phenomenon in the biblical texts um, is this story of the global flood as a means to destroy the rebellious civilization of, uh, you know, those Nordics who broke with the program, the Promethean side of the, uh, of the breakaway civilization. Yeah, so they definitely have been messing around with history. They've been social engineering you know, that's why it's a paradox. They created these religions, but they had those religions when they 
found time travel. That's where I'm getting a little, I've got to get my mind straight. <laughs> yeah. Well, the th- you know, the, pr- the problem I know you, is you, you talk about this uh, quantum computational stuff, but that's like, maybe Vance is better at this stuff than I am. This very, I mean, our minds science. are not, are not, um, trained to think in five dimensions. No, no. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, physicists are, are starting to describe the cosmos in that way now of, you know, thinking in terms of hyperdimensional objects, objects that don't necessarily have an origin point in chronological time that goes from the past to the future, where the future can co-constitute an object uh, at a certain point in what seems to us to be a linear uh, chronological trajectory. For the audience out there, for you heretics, we have only scratched the surface. Jason has uh, almost 500 pages of uh, detail and data, and it's uh, an incredible journey. It's eye-opening, and I think everyone will get something out of it. And uh, it's a great also summary of just ufology and the history and philosophy of ufology. So incredible work, but we are at the end now. Uh, and first, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, being with us on this journey. Oh, it's been a fascinating journey and a brilliant exposition and a brilliant uh, integration of a lot of different things that I've heard about and studied over the years. So congratulations, Jason. I'll probably be buying your book <laughs> as I did the last one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck with it, too. I think a lot of people will be very interested in it. Yeah, thank you, Vance. Recommend. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Miguel. Yes, thank you very much, Jason. And your book is available everywhere, right? Your homepage, Amazon. Yeah, it's available on Amazon. It's also available on Barnes and Noble. People tend to go to Amazon. The hardcover ran out for a while. It, it was available on Barnes and Noble as well the whole time. So, yeah, and there are links on my various platforms: Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. Awesome. We will have this on the show notes, and yeah, very important book. But Jason. It is always a, a pleasure and a delight and an honor to having you at Aeon Byte. And uh, I always look forward to our next chat or whatever you got coming. Well, you, you know, imagine what I would have to do to write a book more unsettling than this one. But, <laughs> I can't think but, of anything. But you know what, Miguel? You can bank on it. I've yeah, you'll figure out a way. Very bad ideas. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Like you said, the human mind, we got to learn. It's limitless. Our psychic abilities, our imagination and our uh, power to get to see things that weren't there. So, yes, you'll think of something, Jason. I yeah, have faith watch, in you. <laughs> watch the crawling eye movie. That'll inspire you. The Trollenberg terror. <laughs> All right. We'll do. Thank you again, guys. Thank you. And there you have it, oh you shining crazy diamonds. The first part of our interview with Jason on Closer Encounters. Shit just got real, and reality just got unreal. In our second part, Jason explains how the quote aliens are able to control us even after we die. Jason will reveal the grand battle between the Nordics and the Tricksters, as well as solutions for humanity to take a W during this conflict. We'll discuss how all of this relates to Philip K. Dick and his concepts of Zebra slash Valis. Jason will expand on the science of time travel. 
He will share on the octopus and Cthulhu, the Vril and Skinwalkers, Free Will, and much more. Don't miss it before the Nordics Mandela effect your ass out of history. And it's only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Or you can now subscribe to the easy-to-use private RSS feed from Red Circle, found in the show notes. And it takes Stripe, since many of you hate PayPal. No matter where you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode. And that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels includes full access to more than 500 quality shows. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US mail really, really helps. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. A tip. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list if you want to help there. Entropy is starting to erode my equipment. Finding Hermes is going strong, and so are our virtual Alexandria exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics and a monthly intimate QA. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the Virtual Alexandria. We've recently done presentations on Gnostic Astral Ascents, Ancient Vowel Magic, The Secrets of the Serpent Gnostics, and Sex Magic and Alexandrian Gnosticism. Quite a variety, eh? Whew! I know that's a lot, but I gotta stay spread out as the Archons are always there to cancel me. I'm also on Rockfin and Odyssey, if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real and the vast of the night hello and goodbye as always at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.